Hey, all right. And welcome to Better Yet. I'm Tim Crisp, your host. Better Yet is a conversation that started in 2016, and it's a conversation that continues this week with my guest, Bob Mayer. Two-time, two-time Grammy Award-winning author of Trouble Boys, the story of the replacements, Bob Mayer is on the show this week. It's a big one, Bubba's. This guy, Bob Mayer, wrote the book on the replacements, but I am the first person he's met who was named after the record they called Tim. We've also got a brand new track from The Lost Days, Tony Molina and Sarah Rose Janko's new LP in the store is out now, and we're going to hear a track from it. What a time to be alive. But, but thank you for joining us. If this is your first time here, this is a podcast I started in 2016 while I was living in Chicago as a chance to interview people just like Bob, creative folks whose work inspires me. I invite you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Bandcamp, betteryetpodcast.bandcamp.com, our YouTube page, youtube.com slash at betteryetpod, and our website, betteryetpod.com. We've got all 200-something episodes of this podcast, plus some supplemental content for you this week, including the video for For Today by The Lost Days, and a link to a playlist of the shit shower and shave bootleg you'll hear me and two-time Grammy award-winning author Bob Mayer talking about on this episode of Better Yet. And I got a replacement Spotify playlist. If you're going to listen to music on Spotify this week, we've got a playlist for you that includes this interview with Bob Mayer, plus some lesser-known Matt's tracks. All that is available on our website, betteryetpod.com. Speaking of .com, I'm a full-stack developer. You can check out my latest development project, Riffin, by visiting riffin.io. Just on your desktop browser, open up that laptop and go to riffin.io. Riffin is a guitar tablature sketch pad. It's a place for songwriters and guitarists of the world to write out their song ideas with our custom tab editor. It's easy to save and store your ideas. You can sign up for an account with an email address, OAuth, is secure through our AWS serverless backend. Sign up for an account today, riffin.io. And a reminder to all those out there, as of March 20th, 2023, I am a full-stack developer for hire, gmail.com. All my dev links are available in the episode notes for this podcast. Hire me or... Let that senior software engineer in your life know that the homie Tim would make a perfect fit for that junior engineer role you've been trying to fill. Better yet, podcast at gmail.com. Let me know. Emanating from Valparaiso, Indiana, the home of Better Yet since 2020, and the home of my favorite coffee roaster in the USA, Dagger Mountain Coffee in valparaiso indiana i'm drinking a cup of dagger mountain coffee this week i'm drinking a cup of dagger mountain coffee every week you should check them out on instagram at dagger mtn 
or visit their website, daggermountain.com. Pick up a bag of single origin or one of their great blends. Order online at daggermountain.com. All right, all right. We got a packed show today. Bob Mayer is on the show, an interview years in the making. We've talked a lot about the mats on this show, and I remember talking to the homie Tony Molina about the replacements when he was on Better Yet in 2016 and again in 2020. I have a lovely memory of Tony Molina, the Tony Molina band, playing a Left of the Dial cover in Chicago. Shout out to the homie Justin Conway. He was there. Tony Molina has a newish project called The Lost Days that features Tony and Sarah Rose Jenko of Dawn Riding. They put out a wonderful demo in April of 2021. And their first LP, a record called In the Store, came out just this past Friday on Speakeasy Studios SF. It's a killer record that combines a love of 60s music like The Birds and Sagittarius with a love for the home recordings of Bill Fox and Guided by Voices. Tony and Sarah recorded this record to tape using a Yamaha MT-8X 8-track cassette recorder. It sounds beautiful and warm, and I think it's time we listen to a track off of it. Here's For Today from The Lost Days. That was for today by The Lost Days from the album In the Store, available on Bandcamp, thelostdays.bandcamp.com. Get yourself a copy of In the Store today. All right, my guest this week is two-time Grammy Award winner Bob Mayer. Bob, fresh off his second Grammy for Best Album Notes for the 2022 reissue, of Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Now, better yet, produced a compilation album in 2019 called All of God's Money, a tribute to Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. But actually, me and Bob, we don't talk about Wilco on this episode of Better Yet. We had so much to get to because we're talking about The Replacements. This guy, Bob Mary, wrote the book on The Replacements. And me, well... My parents named me Tim. So we had plenty to talk about. So much that we made a Bob Mayer board that you can check out on our website, betteryetpod.com. We talk 
all things replacements on this episode. Also, talk to Bob about the writing of Trouble Boys, stories he picked up along the way, and the people he got a chance to spend time with. And this isn't just Paul and Tommy, but we're talking Slim and Peter Jesperson, even Harry Dean Stanton. Lots of fun stuff to talk about. If you haven't yet, pick up a copy of Trouble Boys, get a copy of Dead Man's Pop, the Don't Tell a Soul box set that earned Bob his first Grammy. The dude's written a lot of words, and you know what? They're all good. I'm thankful to have uh, the great Bob Mayer on the show this week. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever, and come back next week. We will be back here for now. Here's me and Bob Mayer. Hello, two-time Grammy Award-winning author Bob Mayer. PR made me put it up front, dude. I'm sorry. <laughs> Welcome to Better Yet. Well, it's uh, it's fresh. It just won on Sunday a few days ago, so it's the first time I've actually been introduced as two-time Grammy winner, but I'll take it. So That's pretty cool. I see one of them's on your shelf. Is the other one going to go right next to it? Yeah, they don't... They don't actually give it to you. Uh, that's a little secret because, you know, I think the Oscars, they do engrave them, you know, on site for people. Uh, these, the Grammys, they don't really, you don't get them until a few months later, a couple months later. Um, so the ones that you're kind of parading around with, uh, you know, like you'll get the Grammy and they'll give it to you. And then as soon as you get to the wings, they take it from you and clean it off so they can uh -huh. give it to the next person. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I think it takes a, a couple months to get the the real one delivered or whatever so well you're gonna be walking around town with both of them letting everybody yeah, know like the story right about, <laughs> well if i have to ever go for another you know there's a famous story about shelly winters the actress when she was sort of in her later years you know she'd won a couple academy awards and you know she was sort of in her low period and they said yeah you know come in and audition for this part and bring us your uh your resume and your headshot and she walked into the audition and with a carpet bag and pulled out one oscar and put it on the table and pulled out the other oscar and put it on the table and said here's my resume and here's my headshot any questions so uh, at least i have two of them now i can pull that in case i have to go for a job interview or something but anyway you're in la now right uh, no, I'm actually, uh, I'm still in Memphis, uh, living in Memphis, and my family's not out in Arizona, so I spend a fair amount of time out there too, but uh, which is kind of where I grew up. But I grew up in LA. I'm originally from LA. Oh, okay. So kind of spread on the spread on the west west and west coast a little bit growing up and family-wise, but um, have been in Memphis since uh, 2006, uh, where my day gig is as the, day job is as the music critic for the daily paper out there in Memphis. Oh, that's awesome. Was was it the job in Memphis that brought you out there or did you feel like you had to be? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have any connection or, or expect to live in the South. It was really just the job that brought me down there. And um, and obviously, you know, been there now 16, I guess I'm going on 17 years. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I love it there. And it turned out to be the kind of unexpected, uh, unexpected move that worked out. You know, I'd really been in jobs in Phoenix and Seattle and Chicago a couple of years, couple of years, couple of years, and just kind of moved on down the road. And then somehow I got to ended up staying in Memphis for a long time. So, but, uh, but I love it. And, uh, and, and, you know, and still, like I say, have ties out West and to, to Arizona and California, cause that's basically where I grew up. Yeah. Was there music in the house when you were growing up? Um, no, not, not as such. I mean, my mom is a, is an artist. She's a painter. Uh, so there was always kind of arts and, and an artistic background. And my dad was in just like business and real estate and stuff like that. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he, he, even though they're both kind of of the, you know, whatever 
hippie generation. You know, they, they were living in Berkeley in the late sixties. My dad's oh, sure. very straight, 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 uh, straight edge dude, kind of in their Catholic and his musical taste. I mean, he, he was never into rock and roll. He loved Nat King Cole and Perry Como and, you know, kind of was into Simon and Garfunkel. That was probably the edgiest stuff he likes. And now mm-hmm. they love world music. My mom listened to anything and everything, but um, yeah, it wasn't so much of a, a like musical background. Nobody really played instruments. I was always interested in music. Um, my uncle, my late uncle, who was actually a journalist as well, uh, you know, who I was very close to, he was probably more the the guy who was listening to, to music and rock and roll and sort of 60 stuff. And that's kind of what I grew up on in LA in a weird way. There was a oldie station at the time krla you know Mm. had become an oldie station it used to be a kind of pop station in the 60s and stuff but they had all the old great djs you know wolfman jack and real don Steele, and so that's what i would actually listen to growing up kind of in the 80s so it was a weird uh delayed sort of american graffiti type uh musical exposure as a kid yeah i would imagine did you think you picked up some of the storytelling habits of those kind of djs uh I mean, no, but I mean, I, I do think there was a, you know, there's a, a DJ who just passed in Philadelphia, Jerry Blavitt, who was, you know, very famous. And like, he was the kind of the last or one of the last of that generation of of DJs. And of course, in Memphis, you know, we had Dewey Phillips. And so those guys are, you know, the real kind of character DJs, uh, you know, definitely, I mean, just growing up listening to that stuff, it, it, I'm sure it's an influence. Um, I mean, I used to literally like call up wolfman jack and request songs it's like a 10 oh, year yeah. old so oh, uh, so yeah i'm sure that had some that, that that had some impact on it too yeah i mean it's just you know that it's kind of a world that doesn't exist anymore yeah yeah definitely i i'm maybe projecting my own experience onto it a little bit because i probably got you know 50 pages of like half started things about the replacements that i've put into writing but i think talking about it has really just like made it come out the best well yeah i mean it's a i mean certainly for me that as much as i love music that this the stories behind the music and the musicians is always kind of what's attracted me more i mean Mm. professionally i guess essentially i've been a music critic or a music writer writing features and stories about music and as much as i love the technical aspects of you know playing and recording and all that stuff i i've always been sort of more inclined towards um, the backstories and the backgrounds and the kind of, you know, personal stories that behind the music kind of thing. So that's, I guess that is where my sort of bias or where my kind of inclination uh, runs towards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I ask the two questions kind of each week, where'd you grow up and was there music in the house? And I definitely took in a lot of that storytelling with music too, because you know, my parents not only named me Tim, but like growing up in a small town, New Jersey, <laughs> in New Jersey, you know, Saturday night was it's not only music in the house, but it's stories like seeing the replacements open for Tom Petty at the Garden State right. Art Center. You know, this is uh, for the kids out there. This is a time when they would play the national anthem at the beginning of any <laughs> public event in New Jersey, great Sinead O'Connor <laughs> and Frank Sinatra controversy. Um, but the replacements are up on stage and the Star Spangled Banner is playing through the PA and Paul yells, play ball, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> so that was music That's growing my... up. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's a pretty. I, I'm not sure if that's the show. There's some kind of fan bootleg video of. I think it, maybe it was Garden State Center, or maybe it was a Speedway in New York. But that tour and that period was. Uh, shit yeah, hits Paula the fans. No, not shit hits Re- the fans. Uh, shit, shower, shave. Right, that's the bootleg. Right, uh, but uh, but yeah, there's a there's an interesting. That that tour, obviously, which I detail in in the book Trouble Boys, that was a pretty interesting uh, kind of thing when the replacements got in front of big audiences, you know, mm-hmm. like they did on that Petty tour. Mm-hmm. Yep, they, as the legend goes, they played a Tom Petty cover that night. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bob, this is um, you know, my friend Mikey Erg is the biggest replacements nerd that I know, and he called it the right thing, your book, which is a fucking godsend. Um, and when I was majoring in English at State College in 2007, like Jim Walsh's oral history came out all over but the shouting, and I was just like, oh my God, this is almost it. It's just missing that direct correspondence. And then your book came along and it was like everything we'd ever wanted. Well, yeah, it's good to hear that. I mean, I I kind of, that was the way I wanted to approach it, because first and foremost, I'm a fan of the band, and I wanted to know probably, you know, the same things that most fans want to know. And, you know, as I always say, that it wasn't like the replacements were a completely obscure group where there was no information about them. They were covered and written about and, you know, all that stuff pretty pretty heavily in their time and afterwards. But I always felt like, there was a level of depth or understanding uh, uh, about the band and their history that, you know, was was missing from all those stories or all the books or whatever that had come before. And, you know, it felt like the the key to that was getting the band involved, which, you know, I did in terms of getting Paul and Tommy, Paul Westberg and Tommy Stinson and Peter Jesperson, who was their first manager and Twin mm-hmm. Tone Labelhead and really all the people kind of were crucially involved in the story to kind of talk. And I think it took that long. You know, I started the book in 2000, researching it or got the contract for it in 2009. I really started setting mm-hmm. it up even mm-hmm. before that, maybe 2007, and it didn't come out to 2016. So, you know, it was when I started, it was, you know, uh, almost 20 years since the band had broke up and, you know, 15 years after Bob Stinson had passed. And I think enough time had kind of had had sort of gone on and passed to where they were ready to kind of look at the experience and the story of the replacements in a way that they could kind of reflect and ruminate, which I don't think in the immediate aftermath of the group breaking up, any of them wanted to or yeah. could really have the perspective. So, you know, I think like a lot of stories, it took that long to to be told because the people, you know, at the heart of the story weren't ready to tell it until sort of, you know, until I started working on the book. And so I was very fortunate in that sense that, you know, they were up for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to talk a lot. Don't worry, y'all. But I got one, one specific question to the book before we just like sort of open up the board with Bob Mayer. Um, I, I've, you know, you use Bob Stinson as the window for this band. And it's not only, I think, the perfect choice because Bob started the band and he's also the, you know, comic tragic figure of of all of this but um you know there was the unexplainable about bob that you shed light on and i'm guessing that research that you found out about bob's you know medical history and the um i think you kind of go with schizoaffective disorder 
Um, yeah, I mean, just his whole his whole personal story, I suppose, and yeah. you know, everything he went through as a kid that was had really been unexplored. I mean, I think that you know, in a way, you say I kind of use that as the door. I mean, I felt like you you know, with any story, you can choose a number of different paths or angles to kind mm-hmm. of to mm-hmm. to start with or have it be the focus. But I just felt like if I didn't pursue Bob and his story, which is so the heart of the story of the band and when he was in the band and even when he was out of the band, he was kind of the ghost in the machine, you know, um, that it, it would have been, you know, it, it would have been fake to, to, you know, kind of focus on any other thing. So, yeah, you know, when you that was, again, part really was the the the. the kind of main driving thing for me it was like we knew about bob stinson bob stinson's as you say this tragic comic figure or whatever just tragic figure this comic figure Mm -hmm. this you know larger than life and but nothing had ever explained to me uh why what why was bob like that what was the sort of path that led him to start the group and then out of the group and then to his you know unfortunate early demise and so that was really kind of the thing driving it and i think in a way it's the thing that drives everything uh with the story of the band and even bringing paul in to the story it's like part of what paul's attraction to bob and this Mm -hmm. ragtag group of of kids and and tommy stinson and chris mars was was you know all that came from their backgrounds and their childhoods individually and sort of collectively their collect whatever that energy was that brought them together um so yeah so that was kind of you know it had to be it had to start there and kind of come through that lens to a certain extent for it to be you know real and accurate i think yeah and i think you know the the kind of the the hilarious like irony of bob starting this band to keep Tommy out of trouble um it's that really just became something that like I identified with as an older brother and like as a as a person who talks to musicians and a lot of people who are younger than me I just like I don't know I've been connected to this music since I was born and that really I think provided um something for me to like really really take from you know I I just get sad about Bob um, even thinking about yeah. it, but um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a heavy, I, you know, I always think like, it, it's funny in some of the reaction to the book, people have been like, oh, wow, I didn't realize this was like such, there was so much weight and heaviness and darkness in this story mm-hmm. because the replacements as they presented themselves were this kind of, you know, kamikaze, crazy, funny, you know, out of control thing that sort of people loved and gravitated to but of course there was something more behind that facade and that was again you know obviously came from Mm -hmm. you know darker sources or more pain you know pain or uh tragedy in its own way and and so i think that you know it's it's surprising you know sometimes people react to knowing that stuff of like oh my god i couldn't imagine like you know Mm -hmm. knowing your places but i'm but and i that sort of confuses me it's like that didn't occur to you like you know the guys with the shaved eyebrows and the and these (laughs) reputations and all the things they did you know you know some people think it was just kind of you know you know craziness for the sake of craziness and there was that element to it but i also i think like i say instinctively knew there was more to the more to the story and more behind the you know, the replacements, quote unquote, behavior um, than than what sort of lay on the surface. And it wasn't quite as devil may care or, um, you know, at least that's my version of it. And I think it's fairly accurate. You know, some like I say, maybe, you know, a- any book, any story, you get 10 different authors, they might tell it 10 different ways uh, mm-hmm. or put the emphasis on it. But I think for me, it really was just like I tried not to shy away from 
and let the story kind of guide me. And, and that's where it went. So that's that, you know, so I feel I feel comfortable uh, that that is as much, uh, uh, you know, that's the, as, as real as the story can get. I tried to present that. And, you know, like I say, some somebody might have fashioned the story or the book differently or put the emphasis mm-hmm. on different things. But mm-hmm. I felt where the real the real heart of the story and the real truth of it lay in lay in that and, and Bob's background and all of their you know, backgrounds and childhoods, because I think, you know, that that drove them to sort of be the replacements. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I, I just got to say, too, as as someone who's been doing one thing for a long time, and that one book took you such a long time, I just kind of <laughs> fucking congratulate you for being able to oh, <laughs> use that for these box sets. And it's just it's a really cool thing, I think, for somebody who just admires work when you see that kind of opportunity that comes after all of that work. I do just want to like congratulate you on that because that's oh, well, well I appreciate I appreciate that. No, I appreciate that. And yeah, it's I mean, it was for me again, it, it comes just from a love of the band and really from the fan perspective. It's like when I got done writing the book and researching the book, I, you know, I found out all the, you know, I was very fortunate that I had access to all the Twin Tone archives, the Warner Brothers archives, and, you know, in checking things or listening to things or researching things, I found, you know, there was a lot of unreleased music, obviously, and a lot of great stuff that, as a fan, I, I you know, I, I felt very privileged to be able to hear it, but I thought, man, everybody else should be able to hear Hell this as yeah. well. Um, and so, you know, 2015, or, or thereabouts, when the band was still in the midst of their reunion, we had some discussions about, you know, putting together an archival series, you know, uh, and I had some thoughts as to we could do this or we could do that and presented it to the band. And basically, it took a couple more years to really get started. But the first thing we did was the live at Maxwell's um, 1986 for sale is the actual mm-hmm. title. Um, it was a live show. And, and, you know, again, that was an easy one to do. And it was sort of a test for the label to see was there really that much interest. And um, fortunately, it sold really well. And the reaction was great. And, and it felt like a necessary piece of their catalog. You know, the replacements are known for being this great live band. But up until that point, there had not been an official high quality live release from them that was widely available. So we thought, let's start with that, see what the reaction is. And fortunately, it was great. And so then we did the Dead Man's Pop Box set, which was a kind of re revisiting and reworking of the Don't Tell Soul album. And then we did deluxe versions of Please to Meet Me and Sorry, Ma. And then, you know, we're working on maybe some other ones for the next year or so. So, so yeah, I mean, again, it was just kind of an outgrowth of the book and the research, but also really uh, my sort of passion for the band as a fan and desire to let everybody else kind of hear this stuff. And in a way, it does function as a kind of um, expands the context and universe um, of the book, too, in a way, Mm -hmm. you know, because I talk about a lot of these recordings that were otherwise unavailable. And now people can hear them kind of get a better understanding and appreciation for the group's um, musicality and creativity and their work, which I think, you know, a lot of times that that sometimes gets overlooked in favor of the the craziness and the anecdotes and the sort of mm-hmm. myth and legend of the band but at the same time it's like they made eight incredible albums uh but also there's all this other wealth of material and music that um you know hadn't been heard until these last few years so yeah i mean it you know i didn't plan on spending whatever 15 years uh-huh. uh, working on replacement stuff but uh but that's just how it's turned out you still hearing me okay? Oh, yeah, I'm hearing you good, Bubba. Cool. I got, cool. as someone who has 40 gigs on a hard drive in a folder called The Replacements, <laughs> I hadn't heard that fucking Matt Wallace mix, and I just <laughs> couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. As someone who has yeah. 
explain that record to a lot of people, but then also had those people who were like, no, it's way better than you think it is. I mean, that was like what I always wanted to hear from those sessions. Right. Um, Right, right. So, Bob, I'm going to introduce you to our brand new segment on Better Yet. It's called the Bob Mayer Board. I've got 16 (laughs) topics written on the company whiteboard here. We got topics ranging from Tim to Slim. We have Matt's Astrology, Alex Chilton, and more. Um, You can see for yourself out there on our website, betteryetpod.com. I'm going to let you start it off, Bob. Um, What's a topic that you would like to... Oh, I get to choose? Yeah. And, oh, I don't know. How about how about Bearsville? Since we were talking about Don't Tell a Soul. Dude, I... Absolutely bonkers, that shit. Did you know going into writing that these sessions were what they were? Uh, Well, you know, it's funny. The Bearsville chapter, so I'd spent a couple years researching the book before I really sat down to actually write anything. And almost as a kind of weird litmus test, instead of writing, you know, chronologically, I thought, let me just start by trying to write the Bearsville chapter. So Bearsville is where they went mm-hmm. to make Don't yeah. Tell a Soul initially yeah. with producer Tony Burt. Um, and that story had never really been told or related much in except in passing in a few interviews at the time and, and never the whole story. So I thought here, here's a one aspect of the Matt's history that nobody knows. So if I can write that and write that compellingly, that was kind of the for me, I was like, that was the litmus test of like, can I even actually write a book? Because I'd never written a book before. So I spent, that was really the first chapter of the book that I wrote, even though it happens, you know, three quarters of the way through the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so when I got done with the Bearsville chapter and I finally put it together, I, you know, I have to say, I was like, holy shit, like this is, I think this is going to be good. You know, one, I think I can do this, mm-hmm. but also this is going to be good. Again, coming from at it from a total fan perspective is like, I am a fan. I didn't know this stuff. If I were just to read it cold, I would be like, whoa, this is crazy and entertaining and explains mm-hmm, a lot. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, Bearsville was a very important, uh, you know, just in the process of the book was kind of the, it was the first chapter I wrote and the first thing I wrote. And it was a kind of uh, test to see if I had a, a good book. And, you know, I, I felt pretty good after I'd written that chapter. So, yeah, anyway. I got the, uh, copy a musician <laughs> right. um where they're promoting that record and they're just talking about how they're really becoming a professional band <laughs> <laughs> i said they used to say that, yeah basically they said that at every point from tim on or, or or you know even in it's funny you see the interviews oh we're not like that anymore we're more you know they say that in 85 uh-huh. 87 yeah. 89 <laughs> and it probably wasn't really true except for the tail end of the band you know 91 so but anyway well, I'm going to uh, pick the next topic, and I think it's one that you, sure. Bob Mayer, are going to be particularly interested in, and that's the big day off, September in 96. Oh, yeah. I was in fourth grade. My mm-hmm. um, my teacher was not very happy. See, my uncle worked for the radio station that put that show on, Radio 104 in Hartford. Um, mm-hmm. And so he actually got us to... I got to go see WrestleMania 11 when it was in Hartford. Thanks to this <laughs> uncle Jay. Thank you. Right. And so we had this thing and it was the big day off and it was his radio station and it was Paul Westerberg. And so we all went together as a family. My dad convinced me to wear a sex pistol shirt 
and <laughs> this is like 96 right 96 yeah so yeah. i remember the violent femmes were there i remember goldfinger was there i watched super drag from the side of the stage and i got i sent you that picture of us mm-hmm. um and tom Pappas wrote listen to big star and so we all hung out they were so nice to me they were so nice to me um and we all watched paul together Tommy Keen was playing guitar and mm-hmm. um, just for everyone at home, they should know that Bob's got a really, really awesome Tommy Keen frame piece in his office. Um, yeah, we we're all watching Paul Westberg together. I'd never been to like a concert like that before. Um, so I didn't really understand what happened when he just walked off and I turned hey. to John Davis from Super Dragon. I was like, I was supposed to meet him. And he said, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a, you, you boys both got unlucky that day. That was not a, it was kind of an infamous show, which I think I read about in the book. Um, yeah, you did. Sort of you was did. like, right. Paul kind of, it was at the end of his Warner brothers deal and kind of the end of the first phase of his music career. And, you know, he always talks about that being kind of a weird time, you know, where he was about to be at the end of his Warner brothers contract and, and and it was really kind of the end of the replacements too, in a way, you know, the extended mm-hmm. end of his replacements life and his first first musical life or incarnation. And, you know, he went away for a few years and went away from touring for, you know, almost eight years after not long after that show. So it was kind of a, 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 a the weird time for him in terms of kind of the end of one musical life and maybe the start of another. So, yeah, sorry. Sorry you guys got that. <laughs> got to experience that day. But, uh, and, you know, and it was a funny thing. I think that show was like, you know, again, a big radio fest and all these alternative bands that had been you know, thought they were very outrageous. And here's like the king of, mm-hmm, you know, uh, mm-hmm. alt, rock, alt rock outrageousness. And he, at that point, he had sort of matured and grown up and and wasn't sort of into that. So it's a, you know, interesting kind of paradoxical moment for Paul in his career there. Yeah, it was, I guess, kind of an interesting moment to be cognizant of a new Paul Westerberg record. And probably like the ninth time that my father was like, this is going to be the one. <laughs> He just right. saw the Goo Goo Dolls at Maxwell six months earlier, and they'd blown up. So who knows? Maybe. Right, and I, right. I remember yeah. I'm watching watching him on Letterman and fucking Tommy. Do you ever watch that? I just turn that performance mm-hmm. on all the time. Tommy just turns his amp up and just fucking wails. <laughs> cool as shit. So um, you're up now. You want me to choose? Yeah. Um, how about uh, uh, Paul Westberg? Paul W. <laughs> like um, Bill W, but Paul W. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm probably not unique in feeling like I just would not know what to say to him. Was How was it like getting... You feel like it took a while to like get... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think, all, you know, I mean, I, even after working with him for many years and having had a relationship of varying sort of roles uh, with him in his life you know i would not claim to know paul westberg well you know in in that sense obviously i know his life very well and his story very well uh but no i mean you know initially uh he was uh, you know i actually the first time i interviewed him was maybe 2004 or five i can't remember whenever folker came out that was the first time in person i'd interviewed him on the phone a couple times before that and um 
you know, I would say this is like that that was really the start of the book, uh, even years before I did it. I happened to do one of a hand. I think he was only doing a handful of in-person interviews for that record and I flew out to Minneapolis. I was living in Chicago at the time. And, you know, I caught him in a period that was sort of right after his father had passed and his his own son was still very young and infant. So he was like, you know, kind of buried his father and was raising a child and he was in a, and, and wasn't touring at that point uh, so much either. Uh, so he was just in a weird kind of, I think, reflective place. So when we first met, we sort of hit it off. And then I think, you know, in the wake of that, whatever my relationship was with him always kind of was, was, was pretty solid, you know, and he was pretty open. That's not to say it didn't have its hairy moments or, you know, kind of uh, moments where he was, would test you because that's his nature. But um, no, I mean, I think he always, once we decided and he agreed to do the book, um, you know, there was always a pretty respectful relationship and a pretty uh, open, he was always very open and honest, which I think is the main thing that any biographer wants and looks mm -hmm. for. Um, and, you know, despite his whatever hell raising reputation of your, I mean, he's actually quite a, quite a gentleman and quite a nice guy um you know when he wants to be in his own way and uh and but he can also be those other things too you know he can also be you know he can be the nicest guy in the world most difficult guy in the world the easiest guy to get along with and probably the hardest you know but i would say on the whole my experience with him was um was unusual in, in that it's it's mostly all been good and and very little bad you know um you know, in that sense. So, uh, and also, you know, a lot of what's in the book is him as a 20 year old, as a 20 year old to a 30 yeah, year old. That's really yeah. the bulk of the time. And, you know, everybody's different in their twenties than they are in their fifties or whatever. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I didn't, I didn't experience the Paul Westerberg of the replacements. I, I experienced a different person. So, um, you know, maybe he would have chewed me up and spit me out if I'd have met him in 1984, but, uh, by, by 2010 or 11 or 12 or whenever I was working on the book, mostly then, you know, it was, it was a different experience. Yeah. I remember, you know, the video of Lord Jane Grace playing androgynous and seeing that song kind of getting taken up as an anthem for transgender people. Did you talk to Paul about, that or like kind of get a sense of how um that song kind of yeah i mean i think the story was and i think it's a woman named rachel cohen desario who actually was a fan of theirs and i talked to them and it was in a period where paul was kind of wearing eyeliner and dressing up you know it was his sort of mm -hmm. peter parrot t-rex kind of phase in 83 84 and somebody messed this woman i think sort of said to him oh you guys are looking androgynous and he always claimed he didn't know what the word meant so he looked it up and thought oh there's a kind of idea for a song you know in terms of the politics of it and how the song has evolved and uh, as far as being embraced by the by the you know lbgq community and everything else um you know i I think the part that is true, you know, I don't think Paul ever wrote anything with kind of, let's say, political intentions. I mean, his stuff was always very personal and mm -hmm. oftentimes the personal, you know, becomes political in its own way. You know, I and mean, I don't think he intended Left of the Dial to be an anthem for alt-rock radio. He was writing alt-rock, you know, and, and the esprit de corps of that world. Uh, but that was he was just writing a personal kind of story and then it became embraced and sort of mm -hmm. taken up that way. And now, you know, left of the dial is kind of a byword for a certain time and a certain era and a certain kind of music. Same thing with the androgynous. I think the audience sort of, and, and other artists picked it up as that. But I do think in terms of, 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 of Paul's writing, I think, you know, Paul was often 
because I think he was he was one himself writing about outcasts and misfits and underdogs mm. and sort of people who felt marginalized either by societies or systems or just the world at large. And so I think there's an inherent kind of, you know, Paul has always says, I hate political songs and I never wrote political songs. But I think in his 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 personal, the, the, you know, the personal nature and his kind of outlook on the world was that of, like I say, you know, an outcast and a misfit, misfit and an underdog. And so it's it's. It's it's there in the work as well, and I think uh, obviously people have responded to that part of it, you know, particularly with that song, but other songs as well. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a queer person. I've always been pretty internal about it. I've always mm -hmm. like had straight relationships, but like Paul's tenderness towards orientation, gender identity, it mm -hmm. really like empowered me to just kind of like honor the way that I feel, and and like it's you know normal, and so. Honestly, I never felt the need to speak it, but right. I was just in that dev boot camp and all these 21 year olds are like, yeah, we know you don't even know that you're gay. I'm like, thanks. Right. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Right. That's all I need to know. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I say, I think that's, I think songs and artists who write, um, yeah, I think, I think like everything, the, the more personal, the more effective you know, writing or songwriting is, mm -hmm. I think the people who aim to sort of create that or manufacture that in their work, um, you know, I don't think it hits or lands as powerfully as when someone does it genuinely. And I think in Paul's case, like he's not thinking about those things when he's writing or trying to, or wasn't thinking about those things per se. I mean, how could he know, you know, 30 or 35 years later that androgynous is going to become this anthem and, and sort of relate and be this song for so many people. But I think inherently, that's the magic of his writing and that's the magic of, you know, what his worldview was again, sort of, of this sort of outcast kind of, uh, and misfit. And so, uh, I think that's what people seize on is, is the, is the, is the truth at the essence of the work that, that came naturally rather than sort of him trying to write an anthem or trying to write something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, it's my turn here. Peter Jesperson is just such a fucking inspiring figure. Um, Absolutely. I take so much from him when I do this, especially talking to younger musicians. Like, what was it like spending time with him? Uh, oh, well, I mean, Peter's one of my great friends. And uh, actually, just coincidentally, he just yesterday or a couple of days ago, they announced uh, that he's written a memoir of his life and his experiences in the music business that's going to come out in the fall. Um, oh, my God. The, yeah. Pre-ordering that. Yeah. Yeah. So from the Minnesota Historical Press. And um, it's it's an, you know, I haven't read all of it, but I know obviously Peter's story. And, you know, even beyond the replacements, uh, there's he's led so many lives and been at the kind of nexus of so many cool things. Um, and so that book should be amazing and a kind of different view of 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 the music the music business and the minneapolis story and the replacement story and and you know even beyond that where he was president of new york uh, new west records for many years and just a really interesting life and so i'm I'm very excited to uh to that that's going to be out in the world here before too long peter's peter's you know kind of more personal story beyond you know it includes replacements but but he's done so much more than, than just that yeah yeah really really cool stuff um Go ahead. I move the board a little bit closer. You see, is it, it my my turn or your turn? <laughs> it's your turn. Uh, okay. Uh, let's see. How about uh, how about uh, SNL Harry Dean Stanton? Oh my God! Every time I see <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton, I just think he and Tommy started drinking at noon. <laughs> um, I actually interviewed. So my Harry Dean Stanton story is. So I did in, actually interview him. Um, 
maybe I think it was well when I was still doing the book, but it was for something else. It was there had been a DVD documentary about him that had come out, or a documentary about him that had come out on DVD. So I did a story for him on Mojo Magazine, and actually went to his house uh, on Mulholland, which I think, as the story goes, it was like kind of on the property of Jack Nicholson's house, or Jack owned it, or something. Anyway, so knocked on his door. It's a little kind of bungalow, and you know Harry was pretty old i mean he'd lived to be very old and, and he was pretty old even then and he was watching some history channel thing about aliens so you know i got to talk to him for an hour or an hour and a half whatever it was i mean he was not the most uh, loquacious uh, man or interview and like i say he was pretty on there in years although totally together but i asked him if you know i asked him if he, he remembered that because you know the snl thing was kind of a unique thing in his career i mean he wasn't he didn't do a whole lot of comedy or sketch comedy or anything yeah. like that or live tv for that matter which is what kind of made that <laughs> that show and that appearance interesting and he, he sort of had some vague recollections oh yeah the band came in because he was also a musician too and so you know he, he had a tendency to jam with people and he jammed with replacements a little bit and drank with them and stuff so i did actually get to to talk to, to harry dean about that even though he didn't have you know tons of anecdotes about it but he, he definitely remembered the you know being on snl and the replacements and the kind of the vague outline of the evening mm -hmm. so oh man that's awesome um i'm gonna pick this uh one right here number eight should i read peter Gronick's elvis book as someone from you, with memphis ties oh yeah you should read all of peter Gronick's books peter peter's a, a another you know friend and mentor and a, an amazing writer and um actually a real uh model for or um, the kind of the replacements book. I mean, I, I love, there's a lot of range of writers and music writers I love. There's people like, you know, Nick Tashas, who, again, somebody I was fortunate enough to know a little bit. And, uh, you know, his style is very, you know, he's very stylistic, very mm -hmm. sort of powerful writer um, and an amazing biographer, but a completely different approach than Gralnik takes. And, and for me, it was like, um, I kind of had to follow the Gralnik model, which is almost to be a sort of invisible narrator and, and, and not sort of impose yourself or your style too much on the story. Because with the replacement story, there was so much there was a lot of fireworks already inherent in the tale and a lot of mm -hmm. action and drama i didn't need to sort of add any of that or mine to it and also just the perspective of like i really wanted i didn't want to sort of feel like the narrator or like feel like a presence in the story um you know i really wanted to, to let the story just I, as people read it for them to become kind of lost in that world and not take them out of it so gronick was a was and is a big influence in terms of how i try and tell stories but particularly the the replacement story and and so yes you should absolutely read his two volume uh elvis biography and actually I have a bunch of them here actually this is my well, over there is my is my <laughs> Peter Gronick shelf but uh, oh, and his Sam Phillips book is amazing. Shelf. Yes, yeah. awesome. And oh, his man. Sam Cook books. I mean, he's written a you know a handful of of uh, you know biographies. Basically, Sam Phillips, Sam Cook, and the two Elvis ones, and then a, a variety of other uh, uh, music books or com com collections of you know essays and stories. Yeah. But yeah, no, he's he's an essential essential guy to read. Believe it. he writes Sweet Soul Music. That Sweet Soul Music book is quite good. Sweet Soul Music and yeah, Lost Highway and I Feel Like Going Home. Those are his other some of his other books. And then he's written a million you know fiction books and and different little things uh, relating to Elvis as well. You know, I'm I'm lucky enough to have some really really great and talented music writers who listen to this podcast. Y'all are the future out there. Oh, nice. do you, Bob, do you have any um, advice for young journalists? Uh, man, it's hard to say because the the world, uh, in general, but the world of music journalism has changed so much since I started, you know, I was, I was lucky. I got basically going in the late nineties, um, and got a job early on in the alternative weekly world uh, when I was like 23 or 24 and, you know, stayed in that world for, you know, a better part of a decade and then transitioned to the daily music journalism. And, 
like I say, journalism, media, music business has have all changed so dramatically since 1999. Mm-hmm. It's hard to you know even kind of understand that. I always tell people when I got my first job, uh, I, I brought the all music guide, the physical copy of the all music guide yeah. because yeah. you know we had the internet, but it wasn't so like it wasn't like I still have mine. That, I still right, have mine. Yeah. <laughs> Right now it's like, you know, so, so, so it's hard for me to sort of try and give advice in a specific way of like, what are the paths to get started? What are, cause you know, like I say, I just, I've been fortunate enough to kind of be working in this world and I've established myself. So I wouldn't know where to start now, but I mean, I just think always you have to, I always say, you know, just consume, consume information, consume, study your subjects. If you're doing interviews, do the absolute research. I mean, everything in my whatever career, quote unquote, mm-hmm. has been based on on just on, on boning up and studying and knowing your subject as well as you can before you do the interview or write the story or do the review or whatever it is. Uh, and, and kind of, uh, you know, I, 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 even if you're not, you don't have to show off everything, you know, in every story you write, but just to have that kind of authority and understanding of your subject, I always think is the most important thing. And so it's so easy nowadays to do that with the internet. I mean, anytime I'm doing an interview now, um, and I do a lot of kind of long form interviews for Mojo Magazine where I go interview, say, Bonnie Raitt or Don Was or, you know, Roger McGuinn or whoever it is, you know, uh, I can at the at the touch of a finger, you know, on, on the Internet, I can find 40 years of interviews and and documents and in, info and, mm-hmm. you know, just history mm-hmm. that I can draw on. And it's so easy and, and so great now to be able to sift through that material, whereas when I started, you, you know, you couldn't I couldn't do it quite so easily. Um, so I think that's a great advantage for 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 you know young journalists today is that everything is available to you that will help inform and better your understanding as a journalist, as a writer, as a music historian or whatever, and 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 make the the resulting work that you do even better. I'm an over preparer, and I think that that's <laughs> right. how I'm good at anything is that I'm just over prepared. Um, let's yeah, go. Let's go through a couple. Quick ones. Uh, Slim Dunlap, did you get to spend some time with Slim? Yeah, I got to spend time with Slim. It was, you know, as anyone who knows him will tell you, he's just one of the greatest guys ever. And um, I got to spend time with him before he, you know, suffered his his stroke. And 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 I've spent time with him, you know, after he's he's still in Minneapolis. He's very lucky. He has an amazing wife, Christy Dunlap, who was also involved in the kind of the replacement story. She was really the one that sort of pushed the mm-hmm. <laughs> or put this planted mm-hmm. the seed that uh, of of them because she was a booker at uh, First Avenue at the time and one of the real key people in in, in Minneapolis music in the eighties. Um, so yeah, I was very lucky to get, uh, and Slim is an incredibly articulate, bright, understanding guy. You know, he was almost 10 years older than the guys in the replacement. So he had a completely different and, and came to it and, you know, as, 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 and he was very close with Bob Stinson as well. So he mm-hmm. had all these amazing sort of perspectives as an older guy, a guy who'd been in music, a guy who sort of came to it from the outside, came to the replacements at a different point than everybody else, um, knew Bob well. And so, yeah, I mean, his perspective in, in a big way, and he was one of the early people I talked to in, in person when I started the book, that informed a lot of my understanding of the story as well. So he was absolutely crucial um, in, in, in my sense of what the book could be and, and how to pursue the story. So yeah, and he's an amazing human being, him and his family, they're all great people. Um, what's your favorite Bob guitar solo? That is a good question. I actually... Um, there's a solo in uh, Nowhere Is My Home, uh, which is a kind of one of the songs from the Chilton oh, sessions. I think yes. is, is amazing. Obviously, I think um, 
you know, tons of stuff on the first record on Sorry Ma. I mean, I think that's, you know, in a way, uh, in some ways, because the band was maybe more Bob's at that point, you know, and his, uh, he was still such a dominant force in, 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 in the group at that point. I mean, he was a dominant force at any point he was in the group, I think, but, but particularly purely in that first record, you hear some of his greatest solos, um, uh, you know, I'm in trouble or, you know, whatever, it's just, just so many great things. So I think, you know, that I would say nowhere's my home, but also, um, also, um, also so many things off. Sorry, Ma. Yeah. I go color me impressed. It's, fucking yes. makes me well, laugh it makes me laugh right. and i hear good guitar solos now and i laugh and i think that that's fun <laughs> right. Um, right right all right we gotta we gotta talk about tim um i mean i think sure. at this point i could have engineered it better um <laughs> but those children's sessions uh, did you were those something that you discovered in your research too or had those been around uh, they, they'd been around. I mean, by the time I started, you know, uh, I, actually, I did the line when 2008, they did an al album catalog reissue campaign. Mm -hmm, and so I did mm -hmm. the liner notes for that uh, version of Tim that came out that they expanded in okay. 2008. So mm -hmm. and and that Chilton stuff was was on there. I mean, some of it had been released um, here and there, like Nora's My Home was on the Boink EP and it mm -hmm. had circulated and been on some comp compilations. And then um left of the dial from the children's session is actually what's on the record of Tim. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, I'd heard some of that stuff and, and, and some of it had maybe been bootlegged even, and, but a lot, all, most of or a lot of it came out on the thing, but um, yeah. And Alex is a, such a huge figure in the replacement story. I mean, not just from those sessions and not just from the famous CBGB show that, they played with him in December of 84 around the time they got signed. And, and later, of course, they yeah. wrote Alex Chilton and went to Arden Studios in Memphis to make Please to Meet Me, which was really kind of driven by, uh, in some ways, by Jim Big Dickinson. Star. And, and, mm -hmm. and then, of course, and Jim Dickinson, who worked with Alex and, 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 and worked with the replacement. So, yeah, I mean, he's a he's a he's a pretty central figure, if not, you know, physically than spiritually in the replacement story. So, of course, yeah, I mean, and, and, and having lived in Memphis so long and known Alex to a certain extent a lot of people who are close to Alex yeah he's a, a another really fascinating character and of course Holly George Warren wrote an amazing book uh a man called destruction, man called destruction. about destruction. Alex's life yep. yeah yeah so it's fantastic so I got the sense that that song was kind of the only way Paul was going to be able to say what he needed to say to Alex was is that something you'd agree with well you know it's it's funny that song and I, I write about it in the book and also in the liner notes to the deluxe uh, box set of Please to Meet Me. Originally, he was writing that, that song was called George from Outer Space. And it was about a guy named George, uh, who was a fan of the band and friend of the band who would mm -hmm. sort of turn up all over the world uh, and see them. And uh, he was a kind of uh, interesting misfit outcast character himself. And so I think he connected with the band, really in incredible guy. And of course, I met him years later uh, when I was doing, uh, you know, when I was working on the book and um and then when I did my book thing in New Jersey, actually, he came out and I get postcards from George all the time. He's a really interesting guy. So he was really the originally mm -hmm. the song was, a, was about this kind of character. And then I think, you know, Paul and his uh, in his own way, his affection for Alex and kind of interest in Alex and his experiences with Alex, it kind of became the song Alex Chilton. And, yeah. and he was leery of writing a song about Alex Chilton, you know, as you might be if you knew Alex. But the band, Tommy and Chris, kind of encouraged him to do that, which is, you know, part of the reason they have a co-credit on the song is because they were really the ones adamant about, yeah, no, this is a great song. You should kind of pursue it. And so it became uh, the song Alex Chilton. And and, and uh, 
and but yeah, it was about this yeah. guy George who I just got a postcard from the other day. So interesting. Oh, that's so nice. You know, Paul, Paul, Paul. Yeah, Paul always wrote about what was in his world. At least at that time, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the songs are informed by people he met or experiences he had or things that were in his, you know, in 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 in, in his vision. And uh, and that's you know probably one of the greatest examples. So. Yeah, if you want, we do have replacements astrology on the board here and i think a good understanding of astrology and understanding of uh chilton and westerberg is that they're both capricorns they're both very kind of difficult to reach out and say hey i like your music (laughs) those stories of chris stamey like trying to you know convince alex chilton that big star was actually a good band it's like jesus christ <laughs> oh yeah no they they had a lot of i guess i didn't think about that yeah paul's december 31st and i think alex is what the 28th or something mm-hmm. like that so mm-hmm. uh, uh, astrology is not my strong suit that's more my wife's uh, field of expertise but yeah and and even uh bob i think sagittarius he Sagittari- he's on the cusp yeah. Yeah, he's a couple couple weeks two weeks younger than uh, older rather than westerberg uh and then you know uh tommy's birthday's in the fall and chris is in the spring so uh, but yeah, it's interesting. That's an interesting point. I didn't think about Alex and, uh, and, and of course, interestingly, Alex was a huge astrology guy, you know, I mean, he mm-hmm. big into that and covered that song. What's your, what's your sign girl. So, yep. so, uh, uh, among, amongst other things he was interested in, uh, uh, in that realm, but, uh, but yeah, no, that's a good point there. They, they share a star science. I'm sure that has something to do with it. September girls. So right. Capricorn <laughs> love song to a Virgo. And if you want to, if you want a good Libra. His name is Tommy Stinson. There you go. <laughs> That's the freaking balancing act of the universe. Um, but back back to Tim. Those Chilton sessions, so good. I I need to just ask you directly. If the left of the mm-hmm. dial, the stick clicks, that feels like something Tommy Ramon would not have wanted them to do. That feels very directly like, no, Chilton like leaves that shit in. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, uh, for whatever reason, they didn't try and re-record that song in those sessions. I mean, they'd done they'd done some songs with Alex, uh, uh, you know. I mean, they did record "Can't Hardly Wait" in those sessions, and they tried to do it with Tommy. Of course, it didn't come out, you know, on, until the next record with yeah. Jim Dickinson. Um, but for whatever reason, they didn't try and attempt to do "Left of the Dial" on the sessions. I think they were just happy maybe with the version they got. And you know, Paul had a tendency, particularly in those days and around that time, to get bored with material. So, like you know, if they cut it a few months earlier, he wouldn't be inclined to do it because he had new songs or just had lost interest in that. And in some ways, that that was a blessing and a curse. You know, a lot of times they would he would he would cycle through material and discard some great material because he'd lost interest you know can't hardly wait is kind of the perfect example i mean that song really had been around believe... for, for several years you know mm-hmm. uh, i and, really and, can't and believe it survived it. i yeah, thought that was one you know of the things. based I think, on his patterns he would just like you know have dropped it i think he knew it was good and the band knew it was good and the people around the band knew it was good so that's why they you know tried recording with chilton with tommy ramon and eventually got it got it right I guess with with uh, although the other versions that have, that have come out too are great too, but uh, you know so that, so that was the song that just wouldn't die. But uh, but a lot of songs did or got discarded. I mean, nowhere is my home. You know, it ended up on on a thing. But I mean, to me, that's one of their great songs. Or there's tons of stuff from the uh, there's tons of stuff from the uh, Delta Soul era. You know, Portland or We Know mm-hmm. the Night, all kinds mm-hmm. of things that they just Paul wasn't satisfied with the recording, or they he had did, has had already tried recording it, was tired and didn't want to do it for an album. So yeah, sort of funny, but that's the beauty of at least that that gives all this uh, you know archival stuff great materials because he was kind of that way too. So that's the yeah. good part of it. Yeah, yeah, and like the live, you know, fun listening to bootlegs and just hearing the words that he, you know, 
like switches around or improvs right. on um endless endless um i guess learning that bob was so limited on tim was pretty fucking heartbreaking um I don't have anything well, else to say other than that. Well, it's I just mean, like... you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, that's uh, even though that was the last record with him, and he's on it. Obviously, he came in at the end of the sessions and did you know laid down all the solos that he did. But um, that was a shift in the band because I think you know dynamically, you know, they re- that was the first record they they recorded the basic tracks as a trio, um, and so you know you see that and then the next record they actually did purely as a trio because Mm -hmm. it was after bob was gone and before slim came in so there's a kind of interesting middle period where i think um the 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 just the 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 physical dynamics of the group shift because it's no longer a four-piece recording basic tracks really a three-piece and that happens with tim although they sort of left room for bob on that and whereas with please to meet me they were even tighter as a three piece. I think that's why rhythmically uh, and also because they were recording in Memphis with some real high level people um, and Jim Dickinson and the engineers, John Hampton, Joe, Joe Hardy and John Hampton, who were, you know, and, and Hampton was a drummer himself. Uh, there's a real focus on the rhythm. Um, but I think, you know, uh, so that's an interesting, you know, just a kind of recording technicality where it, it's Bob's absence uh, in the tracking even though he's on the record in terms of solos, what he ended up adding quite a bit more than I think even people realize um, the, 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 the band was changing, you know, that, that the band mm-hmm. was already in, in sort of uh, flux physically and, and, and dynamically and musically uh, by the time they get to Tim, you know, and really that's kind of the story of all the, you know, all the replacements records from that point on, you know, Tim was basically cut as a trio with Bob on top of it. Pleased to meet me was cut purely as a trio with Paul handling all the guitar. By the time they get to don't tell a soul, it's back to a four piece with slim. who's a totally different kind of guitar player and, and created a totally different sort of musical space. And then by the time they get to the last album, um, uh, uh, all shook down, that's a record that Paul starts and does, you know, with producer Scott Litt and then Tommy comes in and the band's on it a little bit and there's all mm-hmm. these session players. So all of their major label albums are almost completely different recorded differently with a different lineup or iteration of the band with a different kind of approach. So I think in a way that gives the music uh, a, a variety, mm-hmm. um, you know, cause every record was, was a different band basically, you know, from, from the midway point of their career, um, you know, by, by accident or by design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, I have two real moments where it just like happens with the replacements. Like even though growing up with them, they were, they were huge, but like, my favorite band was the Goo Goo Dolls because I thought those records sounded better than the replacements. <laughs> um, so when I when I saw the video for Bastards of Young on that MTV countdown, I didn't expect that. This was the band that I'd watched the SNL performance of, and but I'd never seen the video, and I did not realize oh, right. that it had that type of an impact where it could even show up on a list like that. And then... Well, I think that was more, I mean, it didn't really get shown a lot at the time, but it was one of those things that as a statement video, a kind of anti-video, it kind of was famous within the industry and amongst fans. And then it has taken on this, you know, kind of mythic status, like a lot of things having to do with the replacements. But at the time, you know, it might've got played a hand, you know, a relative handful of times. It wasn't a thing that people saw so much as they heard about and knew about, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The, the, Mm -hmm. the, the, the video for that. Yeah. Um, and couple you know that in high school height of my smith's face Mm. swinging party just like also like 
height am I? Like, um, difficult, uh, mental time in high school. So it was like, whoa, you know, both like as a message from, you know, my parents and as just like a, damn, this is a, there's a depth to this that I really haven't experienced with anything before. Um, so your folks were kind of of the age they were growing up, kind of listening to alternative music and kind of feeding you this stuff or had listened to that stuff. And my dad's or... never stopped. You know, he was a <laughs> he was he went to college to be a radio DJ and just okay. interviewed bands at IU. And I just in, Blo- in Bloomington. Yeah. Yeah. He, oh, nice. Like interviewed yeah. Aerosmith and Blue Oyster Cult and oh, shit wow. like that. And yeah, I just like picked all that up and cool older cousin who like you know understood how cool it was that i was named after the replacements record because this yeah, it was the story of like they you know as they like to tell it dirty harry was on one night and then sometime in between february and november of 1986 my dad sees the story of um paul saying well why don't we call the record tim that'd be funny and so he's like why don't we call him tim (laughs) (laughs) that's great well you're the first person i've met who's actually named after it a lot of people claim to have that the record was named for them or whatever and Uh you know uh the the real story is probably more elusive and involved in that but that's funny but it's interesting i think you know that um you know people can love the replacements you know you were kind of it was presented to you growing up and part and parcel of your world and i had like this totally non you know rock and roll uh kind of background in terms of my parents i wasn't anything they would ever listen to my parents still probably haven't heard the replacements but uh you know but but that we can both come to it and have the same passion for it from totally different you know oh, angles yeah. or, or uh backgrounds is, is you know that's 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 the cool thing about music is it doesn't uh it's not nature or nurture or or has, doesn't have to be fed to you. It's like if you connect with something, you connect with something, no matter yeah. what your rooting or background or whatever. Yeah, yeah, totally. I he I think just the way Paul has talked about everything, you know, his his lyrics are just everything that's happening to him, and I think that that has imprinted itself upon me. It's all everything. So uh, one more thing, and then and then I'll let you go. Um, Sure. You got a, you got a favorite memory of writing Trouble Boys? Is there or you know what's a what's a time that you just like return to of happiness in in the whole process of of writing it? Well, any as any writer will tell you when it's done, but <laughs> but you know it was an ongoing process, and you know I, you know again being my first book, going looking back at it, I mean, I'm fundamentally really happy with the way it came out. Of course, there's you know especially if you're kind of a perfectionist, you won't, I'd love an opportunity to go back and redo certain things or tweak certain things or do it differently. But now on the whole, I'm really happy with it. So I say, you know, when it came out, obviously it was the best, was the best time for me, mm-hmm. you know, and have getting the book in hand or getting the galleys. And then there's still a little work even after that, you know, that you do, but it's, it's writing a book is such a process. Uh, you know, there's the research, there's the writing, you know, you hand that into your, to your editor and you get the draft back. And then, you know, that goes through so many levels. There's the legal read, there's the copy editing, there's the, you know, galley and proofing or proofing and galley and all that kind of stuff. So, and then when it comes out, you know, then you got to promote it. And then in my case, it's sort of been this extension of the book, doing all these reissue projects and archival projects with, with Warner brothers and with Rhino and with the band. So, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's all kind of one big, thing that I've been doing really since 2007. So, uh, and somehow I haven't gotten tired of it. So that's kind of the best part is that my, my passion for it and my interest in it as a, as a thing is, 
you know, it hasn't, it hasn't dimmed and I still love it. And the stuff that I'm so fortunate to get to do and, and, and expose and, and put out into the world so that other people can hear it and enjoy it. That's kind of the best part. So it's an ongoing, you know, that's my, yeah. my great memory of the book is that it's kind of ongoing and, and I haven't got tired of it, which is amazing after, you know, all these years. Um, I have a couple of memories I'd like to share of, of reading it. One of them was 2016 on a flight home from Japan. I visited friends over there. I actually got to see some of my oh, friends wow. and bands play shows in Japan and um, Very cool. flew back. And I, I knew that I kind of wanted to start, this, to start this podcast. And I read your book, like just front to back um, on a flight home. And I have, you know, really, really great memories of like doing that and just having like an open notebook of like kind of who I wanted to talk to as I was starting this oh, thing cool. because you know yeah I you know kind of have always just wanted to do this you know, like I just had this same craving to you know always learn more and the other one um, I brought the book with me to a place called Elephant Nature Park in uh, Chiang Mai, Thailand. It's an oh, elephant wow. rescue out there. I'd been oh, wow. there earlier uh, in 2007 when I was in college, and um, my partner and I went. We volunteered uh, this elephant rescue, and we met a little dog named Hadley, and we <laughs> brought her home with oh, us. Wow. And there's also this drink in uh, Thailand that you could buy called uh m150 it's basically liquid amphetamine so <laughs> i now have uh, a heavily annotated copy of trouble boys oh who, man uh, mark that man. time <laughs> man that's that's even more annotated than my uh my draft of it wow um yeah you know that's i mean that's what i and you know uh, my hope is eventually uh through one circumstance or another maybe when it's 10 years old or something i'll get to do an expanded you know edition because there was so much stuff that I, you know, didn't include. I mean, the original manuscript was quite a bit longer, although, you know, it was mostly anecdotes and quotes and stuff. I mean, the essential mm -hmm. story is intact and it's there. But I had a whole thing of uh, kind of end notes, of, you know, tangents, really. And, and uh, you know, I've been lucky. Again, that's part of the great thing about working on these reissues is like I've been able to put a lot of that stuff in the, the liner notes notes to like uh, dead man's pop or to like sorry ma in particular i was able to go back and talk about that record and got to talk to chris mars some more in depth about it and you know just finding stuff as you do you know i mean as, even as long as i spent researching the book so much more stuff has come to light since it's come out so i'd like to go back at some point and do a kind of cleaned up expanded you know uh, additionally annotated version of the book so maybe someday i will get a get a chance to do that you know and, and in, in the meantime we're like i say with all these projects i get to pull out some material that maybe didn't make it into the book and use that for these for these uh reissues in the liner notes so it's, it's pretty cool you know to kind of uh, to see you know your your annotations there but uh but yeah yeah so like i gotta i gotta do that myself someday and, and add to it add to the story you ever need a proofreader i'm here for you Bubba. <laughs> fair <laughs> thanks for coming on Thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate it, and uh, and appreciate the the cool format and the board and all that stuff. And <laughs> and glad you've been in, you enjoyed the book and been enjoying the reissues and stuff. And you know, if anybody wants to find out more about it, there's uh, troubleboys dot uh, uh, com or replacementsbook.com, dot com. Actually, probably the best sources for that. And then I'm on Instagram, bobmayer three, and 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 on Twitter at bobmayer. And I I try and I haven't done as much, but we'll probably start posting again more kind of replacements factoids and photos and things like that i try and kind of keep that stuff going for the people who you know follow me there for that stuff so if you're a replacements fan those are all good places to to check out oh yeah thanks brother
Stones are playing Philadelphia tonight, but uh, we're better, so fuck 